Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. Or just plain welcome if it's your first time here. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. If you hear fireworks in the background, well, that's quite appropriate because it's actually the 5th of November today, so let's just pretend that's entirely intentional. It's been quite a while since I released an episode. I took a bit of a work-related break. I was actually producing a podcast professionally and just decided to focus on that, Um, but I'm now raring to go and have a slew of exciting guests in tow. The first of which is someone who I've wanted to speak to for a really long time, and that person is Gemma Desai. I first encountered Gemma at an event hosted by The Quarter Club, which was co-founded by former podcast guest Joe Duncan, where Gemma was reading a letter she'd written to her daughter Lena, which evolved into a tiny letter for a while. And then I kept encountering Gemma's name and work in various iterations, and I was always struck by how thoughtful and rigorous and, I guess, unconventional it was. Like, I just, I felt like there was no one else doing what Gemma was doing. And then in 2020, I read Gemma's research paper, This Work Isn't For Us, which considers how arts institutions and cultural policy, particularly initiatives towards inclusion, have treated or rather mistreated the black and brown people they seek to include. And I've never read anything like it. It's a significant piece of work in so many ways. And I knew then that I wanted to speak to Gemma about it. And so I'm really glad that she has agreed to come on the podcast and talk about all manner of things, including that. In terms of a professional work biography, Gemma is a writer, researcher, researcher and curator based in London, currently completing a PhD on practices of freedom in the arts. Most recently she was head of programming at the Berwick Film and Media Arts Festival and she has also held positions at the BFI London Film Festival, British Council and Independent Cinema Office. She is also the founder of a curatorial initiative called I Am Dora and is a fellow of the CLAW Leadership Programme. We talk about a myriad of things, including her role as a programmer and her ambivalence around that label, community, colonialism, the need to redefine or abolish the idea of linear progression, what leadership means to her and why she hopes it will be dismantled, the issues at the heart of campaigns like Me Too and Oscars So White, how to structurally enable care, out of office emails, embracing possibility and joy, and much, much more. I see this podcast episode as being hopefully a bit of an antidote to feeling like you don't belong in the film industry or feeling like your career doesn't make sense or isn't one thing. I think it's a really expansive and generous conversation and as you'll hear in the intro it was actually our second recording so I'm really grateful to Gemma for sitting down with me on two occasions and having what I see as being a bit of an eye-opening or mind-expanding discussion. This is episode 93 of Best Girl Grip. This is actually our second time meeting because we had a conversation which I mean I did really enjoy but you you raised the point that I think we we discussed your career in the context of a trajectory and a linearity which I think is something that yeah as we just spoke about isn't always right isn't always true doesn't always feel um, like it speaks to people's paths in their career so we're we're going to have a, a different kind of conversation which perhaps acknowledges the the different aspects of your career the fact that you used to work in the film industry but you don't so much anymore and see what comes out this, the other side thank you so much as well for like being open to doing this again yeah I think that yeah as we were just talking about it's really about thinking it's it's sort of I mean we're going to talk about like what I'm doing now like for my research like I'm sure we'll get into that but one of the big things that I'm really researching at the moment is I guess the ways that colonialism like still 
impacts the ways that we work in all of our different ways that we work right whether you work in the film industry or if you work as an artist or whatever you do in the arts or the creative industries as they are called and I think that there is something that I've been sitting with which is colonial histories or like basically anything that exhibited art or like creative things during the colonial period presented kind of the best supposedly and othered things and also presented a linear narrative of progress and within that a lot of violence and yeah problematic to say lightly ways of putting those things together were completely erased and I think there's something about the career trajectory story which does that too is that there is this kind of sense of, every, you know, like everyone likes to tell their story and everyone likes to believe that the reason that they are where they are is because maybe because of random occurrences, but that there is a sense to where they've ended up. And everyone likes to think that they're special and exceptional. I think that that's something that like is really natural to want. And But I guess what I really craved when I was actually really struggling to find work or struggling to enjoy the work that I was doing in the film industry was kind of just a more honest depiction of how you navigate these things and you know like as anyone that has read my work will know like I'm a firm believer that like the film industry is really like problematic space that replicates some of the most terrible things about the world and I think that one of the things that I really, really wanted through like the research that I did was that people were a bit more honest about things. You know, one of the lines, the last lines in the research is just like tell the truth. And I think that's really hard to do sometimes when we're talking about ourselves. And also people don't always want to hear it either. Right. And I was thinking about that after we had our conversation was like, oh God, like, what did I say that people won't want to hear or did I present it in a way that was structural or was it too personal or does it just sound like I'm just sharing like trauma which is absolutely like not at all the interest of the work that I do it's not really about like oh look at what a terrible time people have in the film industry it's like my interest is really in like the reason why the film industry or the arts or anything that struggles to create uh, equity or struggles to create you know like my, my research is very much around practices of freedom like struggles to create like a liberated space that that actually is this this is like history repeating itself or it's a it's a mirror to society right so I'm interested in the structural rather than the interpersonal and I felt like it's hard sometimes to to really express that without tipping into the interpersonal I'm not sure all of that makes sense but so I really wanted to think about yeah the structures really and I think that starts with how we begin and which which conversation we begin with and which language we use as well right Mm. well I think you've presented a really exciting opportunity for both this conversation but just in the context of the podcast in general to kind of reframe yeah how we consider our careers how we talk about them you know so I will start off by asking what I usually ask, which is where you went to university and what you studied there. Yeah, I I mean, I went to Bristol Uni and I studied classics. So I think what is interesting about that, there are lots of stories that I can tell about how I ended up there and why. But essentially, it gave me access to an elite education and I wasn't. And that is you know, that is something that I think about a lot. It's like it opened many doors, but I certainly didn't come from the world 
that that people that I studied alongside did and that was not always clear to me not always as clear to me as it was to them so I'd gone to grammar school before so I kind of knew how to write and you know I knew the kind of codes of of this space somewhat but I didn't understand the social codes of it but I loved study I also had like loads of fun like Bristol is like a brilliant city and the reason why I chose Bristol from all the places was because of the musical culture at the time so yeah it was I think you know the thing that I kind of would say about that beginning point is very much just I had access to an elite education and within that is something that I just grapple with basically is like you know we can have access to a lot of privilege but what do you do with those things Mm. and I guess I want to stop there in case I do go into this like linear like progress narrative because actually I would say that that was also like a site of a lot of confusion because yeah I guess I, I really collided with class in a way that was really different to the ways that I collided with class in more working class or lower middle class settings I'd been in before so coming out of that educational space, what was it you were interested in in doing for work? You know, what were you thinking? This is what I maybe want to go into or this is what I would like to do with my my future. I really loved learning. And like so I did a master's like straight after. But I don't think I understood like, you know, like. I didn't have anyone that I knew that worked in the arts or I didn't know what the jobs were in the arts. So I don't really know what I wanted to do for work. And so everything that I've done subsequently is kind of just things that have kind of, you know, someone I have met someone that's led me to like the next thing. And I just I like ideas and I love like to think. So I think and I and I really like the things that I really responded to in like my degree was very much about that like, I guess the politics of the degree. So this idea about uh and also the the sort of I was really into like the the dramas, like the Greek tragedies and every you know, kind of like psychosocial aspect of the classics, right? So I was really interested in that. And then when I went and did my master's, that was the first time that I kind of read post-colonial writers and understood I guess started to understand the structure and that's where I first read like Stuart Hall and but I I, you know I think I really definitely those spaces were very rarefied spaces and very different people did masters and went to university at those spaces as opposed to if you're entering that space now right like there wasn't this real understanding or that you know there weren't there weren't people like there wasn't really like Twitter or like there wasn't a lot of like Facebook like sharing or anything like that so there was no way of like connecting the things that I was learning to then the world of work so I think this line between academia and work and was really it just didn't really exist in the same way that it does now and I don't mean in the sort of professionalized sense it's more like yeah there's a lot of like more accessible writing that has been has circulated since that's kind of connected the kind of theoretical to the structural to the like more like practical and I think at that time it didn't really exist so I was just like I like reading I like thinking about these ideas I was starting to make those connections to like popular culture because I was reading like Stuart Hall who really talked about that 
but they didn't really you know there was no like galdem or there was no there was no space where you could really explore that so I knew that I wanted to write I knew that I loved popular culture and then but I didn't really know that those two things could be connected in a job like programming which is Mm. you know what I then ended up doing so it was all really accidental really I'm wondering like prior to discovering outlets for your ideas like how you express them prior to knowing about Galdem prior to Mm. forming I am Dora like which we'll talk about in a bit but like where were you putting those thought processes? Yeah that's a really good question actually because I think what you're talking about is community like what was my community like intellectually or otherwise and I'd have to say that I didn't have one because even within the context of university the things that I was interested in were totally different to what my friends who were doing those courses were so like my master's dissertation was on hip-hop and like no one really cared about hip-hop sometimes to make connections and and maybe we'll talk about this a bit later in relation to the film industry really is like you need community to to be able to actualize ideas so I didn't really do anything with them if I'm really honest so therefore the ideas didn't really go any further I think also your question brings to light this other thing that I think is really important is that it's not enough to just read or like to write an essay (laughs) but like it has to be practiced in some way like whatever that is it could be like an art that you make or it could be it needs to be practiced in some way it needs to be applied for it to really truly like change your life or change something so I was doing that thing of reading and that did something because I've you know you know I absorbed something but it wasn't it wasn't able to actualize in certain things because like community really didn't exist for me and didn't exist for a really long time actually so I think I just knew that like instinctively that this had meaning to me that all of these texts like you know reading things like Guy Through Spivak reading stuff like Stuart Hall reading stuff like Edward Said it was like it was very important but I didn't know what to do with it and at what stage did you discover a community I think, and again, this is like another question that's really relevant to the film industry, is that I think I thought I was part of a community of people, but I don't think I was. So I think there's different ways, right? So I think about like this idea of networking or performative alliances, right? Which mm-hmm. the film industry is really good at. There's these pictures of people at film festivals, but it's presented as like, oh, we're all friends. And actually... I don't think I found my community until about five years ago. And I had people who I have known for a really long time who are really formative in in some of the things that have taken root in the last five years for me. So I had someone that I worked with at the Black Cultural Archives, which was like my first job after doing my master's, Kelly Foster, who I like worked with, who, you know, me and Kelly have like a conversation like once a year or something for like five hours. And she's just like someone who like constantly like teaches me or makes me think. And so I had like people like that but in terms of like a real community that like I could experiment with I don't think that really happened until about five years ago and I think one of the reasons is because I actually don't think that the film industry fosters community I think it actually does something really quite the opposite and 
I think it's rooted in, I guess it's rooted in displays of power. It's rooted in, it's in a, it's a very hierarchical, like elitist space. Mm-hmm. And so for every person that is part of a community, there's also an outside to that community. It's not like this space of ever growing openness. And I think it's still very monocultural. It's still very like classed. And I think the other thing is that it's very apolitical in the UK. And I think that's something that I really struggled with because I think that even though I wasn't organising or I had, you know, I'd had this history with like political discourse, which I didn't know how to apply. So when conversations would happen in the film community about gender, so when Me Too started to happen or when diversity, like the conversation about diversity, like reemerged, I kind of knew that they were really flat conversations and I kind of knew that they weren't what they said they were and and then I could see like from my experience and the ways that my interpersonal relationships were kind of unfolding that they were kind of just replicating the thing that they seemed to be critiquing but yeah I didn't really have anyone really to talk to and you know you do you find people and there are people that I like adore in the film industry who but I would only find them like snatched moments you know it wouldn't be like oh wow there's this group of people and we're all all making work together it was literally like it was the people that were having a bad time or could see even if they weren't having a bad time and they were you know supposedly from externally doing pretty well they understood that this wasn't what everyone said it was and they were kind of just using it to do the thing that they thought was important and I think that's different to my idea of community now which isn't about like all huddling together in this like sense of like oh god something's wrong but actually coming together because you want to do something differently and you want you you know you imagine that you could do something differently and that's like inherently like a completely different way of forming community isn't it this was more like oh my god this is so traumatic like who can I talk to about this Mm -hmm. so yeah I think my understanding of that was really formed when I visited like Black Star Film Festival in Philadelphia for the first time and that was like oh wow this is what community is that's what people talk about so Black Star like comes from a lack in a sense But it's not, it doesn't like at all. Like it's a group of people who built something together and centered what they needed. And it's a space of great joy and possibility. Mm. And it's political, but it's not like constantly having to like give labels to that politics. It's like a space where it's just practiced all the time through the programming, through the kinds of conversations, the kinds of spaces, all of that kind of thing. So that was a moment where I was like, oh, wow, this is what belonging might feel like. And this is something that I haven't had. And this is something that I want to build. And that came just before I did this fellowship called the Claude Leadership Programme. And I had this opportunity to like reorient, right? Like I had this year off work and I made some decisions about who I wanted to spend time with because of that. And that was really transformative. And that 100% built a community of people which... I really treasure and some people like through online meetings some people through face-to-face meetings some people like looked after me when I like traveled overseas and like you know fed me and they're very much like dialogic intimate relationships and that's what I think community is. Mm. You raised the claw leadership there so now feels like a pertinent time to ask what you got from that program and also what leadership means to you. The claw leadership program was like just 
so I, I applied for it because I was on maternity leave and I didn't want to go back to work because I really had had a really hard time at the job that I was in at the time. Like I'd been pregnant for like most of the year that I was in this new role that I was in at the British Council. And for lots of reasons, that was like a job that was really difficult in many ways, which at the time I didn't really understand why it was so difficult. And now I have quite a clear understanding of why it was so difficult. But at the time I was just like very much like internalizing this thing and feeling really like unsuccessful and like a failure. And, and I guess, yeah, really burnt out and a bit sad. And I saw this and I really thought so at the time so my in relation to the question that you asked about leadership at the time my understanding of leadership was that it was tied to power so it was like wanting to be more powerful that's what I wanted because I felt extremely disempowered and so I applied for claw because I just was like oh people get claw and then they get into a senior position and so that's why I applied and then my experience of it was about actually unlearning that relationship to leadership like really actually that is what happened and you know again it's like not a linear story and it's just on reflection that I did that and I don't want to make it sound like I have some formula of how you do that but essentially I made a series of choices through because you could kind of build your own program and I also was able to because of the people that I was on that fellowship with start to understand how so Claw Leadership is also a professional development program right so it's about developing skills so that you become more professional and started to see how those skills actually weren't relevant to a lot of people or didn't account for like the injustices of those professions or actually didn't answer a lot of the questions I needed it to answer right it seemed to me that it was telling you to follow even that it was kind of talking about building like a sort of a kind of leader that were that you were right so it was about your own skills and and so on but it really what it really did feel like it was like a course that would keep everything in place and not change it too much and now I understand and I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit more and now understand it to be reformist professional development is reformist it's about like modifying small things but leaving the structure whole and I think now my relationship to like leadership is that leadership is not following and it's not about uh, exceptionalism and that leadership is constantly like evolving and that leadership is also hugely about listening and also that leadership is inherently like something that none of us should aspire to and I hope that the idea of leadership is completely dismantled in like another world that I hope lots of people choose to build but like in the world that we have now I think that yeah it does require leadership it does require people who are willing not to follow that are willing to to speak up and tell the truth or and I think in a way leadership is just resisting like a narrative of progress like we've talked about because it's, and it is really about truth telling, both about the possibilities of things, but also about the things that are wrong, right? So I think a lot of the time, leadership in the arts, the people that are seen as good leaders in the arts are pragmatic people. And pragmatism is really about keeping things the same. And I'm really interested in people that ask you to imagine otherwise. And that might be because they're drawing attention to problems. 
because they're so, they're drawing attention to the problem so that they can change. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes there's a lot of stuff around like, let's be positive, let's be practical. And I, I've experienced that a lot from managers that I had, you know, well, you know, what you're bringing up is too big. I, I don't have the power to change it. To me, that's not leadership. That's like the epitome of civil service, like bureaucracy. It's like, let's just keep everything the same. Let's keep it ticking over, you know. So yeah, I think my, my relationship to that word is like kind of ambitious but I also think that it's an important concept for us to really grapple with. Absolutely. To give a bit more context to this conversation, let's talk about your kind of your role and the fact that you've spent the bulk of your career in the film industry. You know, you've been working as a programmer or or a curator. We can also talk about your ambivalence towards that term. But how did you find that or how did that job find you? Yeah, like I said, I really like thinking through artwork thinking through cult popular culture and I started work in I think it was like 2008 I started in an on an internship at the BFI in the festivals team and I learned about this job like programming but it took me a long time to be able to actually do any programming right I did I basically was in the programming guest team first as an unpaid intern and then on a series of contracts at various film festivals mostly the BFI I really believe like for me like I had a very transformative like education with film and I think there's so many possibilities to film and I, I didn't really have language for it and I'm starting to get language for it now. I do, I do think that, you know, I'm still reading a lot about embodied social justice at the moment and there's something about film that like works on so many different senses and that can really transform and transport you and that can be used for both good and for bad. And But I really had like very profound experiences in the cinema and I really who wouldn't want to be paid to have transformative experiences in the cinema and like write about them and meet filmmakers and yeah it was three film festivals but you know like my experience with film festivals is that they are really they are the site of I mean a lot of stuff is being spoken about about that at the moment so there is a Instagram page which I think is called film festival stories or something where like people are sharing in the states people are sharing their experiences of working in the kinds of roles that I was working in and it's really crazy like you can see like how that how much like bad work practice is normalized in that world and it makes you wonder why people do it but the reason that you do it is partly because you are part of this like to go back to your community question partly because you're part of a group of people and you're all in it together supposedly but also because yeah people come to it because of this love for the form of film so anyway I did like this work then I applied for a job one year because of various staff changes I ended up being a programmer at London Film Festival but wasn't given the job title and wasn't given any of the recognition or any of the training or the kind of help that you would get if you actually got a job as a programmer right right kind of just ended up programming a lot of work doing loads of Q&As but like really having this quite weird experience where like nobody knew that I was a programmer even though I was quite visible but there was no sort of like for instance like I wouldn't have been able to say on my Twitter that I was a programmer right like so there was this lack of kind of labeling of the actual job that I was doing and so I'd been doing this job and then this internal 
job came up and or two internal programming jobs came up and I wasn't able one of them I wasn't able to apply for because it was for internal candidates only and I was on a contract and then the second one went externally and someone with more experience that had you know been labeled a programmer got the job so then I was like in this position of just absolutely like I was just like very much ready to give up and then I got this job at the independent cinema office as a cinema programmer and that was kind of really I mean that was very fascinating experience and that was the first time that I was called a programmer but it was such different programming Mm -hmm. to what I'd been doing before right and yeah I guess What was interesting about that experience was like, it's only until now when I've just recently like done the Berwick Film Festival as head of programming. That was the first time that I've ever had a um, job title as a festival programmer. Even though I've done like 10 years of festival programming, Mm -hmm. I've never had that job title. And I know that job titles shouldn't matter, but they do. Because that is like how people recognize what you are. Mm, it's a shorthand. And it's 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 also, I think, I think I'm I'm trying to sort of think it through really. It's it's a shorthand, but it's also this, it creates a reason for you to be in certain places. And I think it, it's more painful actually, just in that interpersonal way, because people want to know what you are. What are you? Mm. And so like you find yourself sort of going, oh, well, I do this and I do this and I work for the festival. And automatically, if you say you're a programmer, then you're part of this world. But if you can't say that because you don't have that job title, then you're constantly in this like weird space of like, am I a programmer? What do I do? And what is a program? And who gets to do that? So it was just like a very, it's I've had a very strange relationship with film programming. And even now when people are like, you're a film programmer, I just am a bit like, am I? But I think that's been a good actually ultimately I think for me it's been a really good thing because it makes me question everything like it makes me question how people you know some people now like there's so many courses curatorial courses that teach you how to be a programmer Mm -hmm. or there's so many professional development programs that teach you how to be a programmer and yeah sometimes I teach on those and now I'm just like honestly you know you can learn this stuff it's so easy here's an article that tells you how to research rights but don't think about that think about these structures which no one is thinking about right think about the language of the film festival think about like who's left in and left out think about how film festivals replicate neo-colonialism like there's so many more interesting conversations that you can have about it I think the reason why I have thought about those things or ended up thinking about those things I'm not the only person that's thinking about them I'm not trying to say that but one of the reasons why I think I want to think about that is partly because I just wasn't really let in to this thing and I still did it anyway so it makes me just realize basically what a scam is and I think that in a way that's like a very liberated place to be well, you raised Beric there and it feels like a good time maybe to segue mm. to your role there, especially to because you were raising kind of some of the questions that you think are more important to ask in, in the context of a film festival. And I know at Beric, you you put together this like Google Doc, which was sort of contained notes on your programming practice and, and some of the considerations that were in place when you were thinking through that program. So can you talk a little bit about why you put that together and what were some of the, the things that you were thinking about that enabled that that program to come to life? 
part of so the this research uh paper that I did during the claw leadership program so one of the things that when we were talking about the claw leadership program you asked me like what did I get out of it one of the things I got out of it was this research paper this work isn't for us because as part of the claw leadership program I could apply for some money to do in-depth piece of research which ended up being this work isn't for us which we can talk about a bit more in a minute but part of the process of it in that time was also me reflecting on the last 10 years I'd worked at the London Film Festival and me and a group of programmers that were all working there all programmers of colour started to talk and we'd never really talked before firstly because actually I worked there for a long time when there were no programmers of colour apart from people with regional expertise. So people, you know, like the programmer that programmes MENA or the programmer that programmes Africa or whatever. Like, so, you know, there were those those people, but essentially people that worked across the programme, there were no people of colour. Suddenly there was this moment where there were more. And so we started talking and we started sharing experiences and we started sharing critique and that and also my reflections on how I had navigated the last 10 years I started writing down basically like what felt unjust about the experience and also Mm -hmm. what I saw as like structural inequalities that were being played out in the ways that decisions were being made in the ways that some people were being listened to and some people weren't in the ways that some people were getting their trips paid for them some people were paying out of their own pocket in the ways that everyone was getting paid different things Mm -hmm. like all of these types of things and so I wrote it all down and I kind of shared it with the leadership team and I started through that experience of like exchange, which was like in, on one hand, like deeply clarifying and on the other, like so deeply demoralizing because it just felt so intrenchable. I started to understand just the ways that group dynamics, so who's in the room, but also uh, language. So what we what we call things and also the ways that we make decisions basically hindered what we say we all want, which is a diverse, multiplicity programme. And also it meant that some of the conversations that we would have were really like flattened and apolitical, right? So we would talk about like numbers of female filmmakers, but what were those stories about and what were they upholding, right? And who got to program them and where were they placed? And so those kinds of things were the things that I came with to Berwick and I wanted to think them through. And that's kind of why I applied for the job. And yeah, so the first thing that I did at Berwick was to ask an organisation called Resist and Renew to lead some workshops on group dynamics and decision making. And they're really simple workshops and they're very affordable, but honestly, they are so revealing and so interesting. And the Resist and Renew do some like really brilliant work that's rooted in their experiences in movement organizing, right? And it really brought to light a lot of things. And also I started to do some thinking around the language that we use. So, you know, Peter, the director at, uh, at Berwick Film Festival is like, has, has also done this thinking too and pointed out the word submission, for instance as this really like supplicatory term it's like I'm submitting my film to you please look at it right so that it automatically creates this like hierarchical relationship yeah so we were thinking about sort of the colonial underpinnings of this and then I was like then looking at like the other structures like the competition which Berwick had already started to like take the competitive elements out of right they started sharing the prize money 
And then, but then they were going to reinstate the jury. And, and so we started talking about the jury and the language of criminal justice and why are we sitting in judgment in work and why aren't we sitting in relation, right? And this was very much informed by not only those conversations I'd had at LFF, but also in the ways that my research had kind of circulated during like the Black Lives Matter resurgence and how I'd come to understand my like thinking as like really rooted in abolitionist thinking rather than reformist thinking, right? So if we if I understood my work to be that, then using the language of criminal justice, using the language of a jury just seemed completely wrong. But, you know, also within abolition is this idea, this commitment to relational work to transformative justice. And so then we start to think of ways that how could we do this work and continue in relation with each other? Like, how do we tether ourselves to this work rather than sit in judgment in it? And that was really informed by what the first film that I watched in the programming process, which was Jordan Lord's Shared Resources, which I really recommend like everyone seeks out and watches. And this work is like about it's about debt, it's about documentary, it's about access. So uh, Jordan's family kind of lost everything in Hurricane Katrina and Jordan's father was a debt collector before that happened. And the film is really about debt societally, but also within the family. And there's this really pivotal scene at the centre of it where Jordan attempts to draw up a contract with their father and so which would be a standard contract in documentary filmmaking which would be like a release contract right and it would just release Jordan from any responsibility like after you know the film had been made you know like you agree that whatever happens now it's mine essentially and Jordan's offering their dad a an alternative contract which is a chase agreement which essentially offers Jordan's father the ability to constantly be in relation with Jordan if if later like 10 years later their father said I don't like how you depicted me then Jordan will address that will have that conversation will change the work potentially right and what's really interesting about the conversation is that Jordan's father doesn't want that and and inherently just thinks oh god why would you give up that power like, this is your piece of work. Like, why are you giving it up? I think that within that, there's something really interesting about the whole film industry, but specifically about festivals. It's like, actually, it is this display of power and importance and exceptionalism. And actually, if we start operating in these other ways, what does it actually do to the festival? Like, does it even exist? So those are the kinds of questions that are really sitting in my head. So I wrote a series of documents to discuss with the programmers we did some reading together and we tried to we tried to move with that thinking through the process and I have to say you know like it was very difficult and the reason why it's difficult is very much in the same dynamics as Jordan shows in the film with their father you collide with how the world around you hasn't changed you collide with how the whole industry hasn't changed and then you're trying to do things differently but then you wonder what is your actual place in the industry anymore and what is it that we're actually doing so I think there was a gesture towards understanding that one event can't do it alone if if we're talking about changing the way that we show work or trying not to replicate these harmful things then actually we just should share that information and share that thinking. So the the thinking behind sharing the Google Doc was very much that and to keep that conversation going. I don't know if it will succeed. I don't know what, I don't know if people are engaging with it. I don't know if people are interested. I was kind of surprised 
that a lot of people that have talked about these things and talked about injustice in the film industry don't seem to have engaged with it. Maybe they don't understand it. I'm not sure. Maybe it's also because Beric is aligned with like visual arts. But yeah, I, I think that it was an interesting experience and I'm kind of still sitting with it and thinking about why it is that there isn't a louder, more vocal conversation about how things could truly change if we all work together. Before we move on to this work isn't for us and, and delve deeper into abolitionist thinking, I just want to take a quick detour, which which actually kind of relates to just your comment there about more vociferous conversations. But you, you've used the term flat conversations twice, and I'm really interested in how you think that we can have more three-dimensional conversations that speak to the truth of what's happening. I'm interested in this word radical, right? Radical means going deeper. And to me, going deeper is going into the past and really interrogating our language and how that then relates to what we're actually doing, right? And I think that we don't do that in the film industry. So two examples are Me Too and Oscar So White. Me Too basically draws attention to a very important issue in the film industry, which is predatory male behaviour. Sure, like that is 100% an issue. But what it really advocates for is replacing those men in power with other women in power. And it, it advocates for carceral punitive justice and it advocates for throwing people away. Everyone should lose their jobs and we should take them. And to me, that's totally not getting to the, the issues. So, yeah, I think that the film industry is really good at displaying things in that way and saying, you know, this is really radical and this is really interesting, but completely leaving unexamined. How are we actually operating and how are we replicating it? And I think Oscar So White is a really similar thing. There is this deeply imperialist, racist structure and what we're advocating for is that we should have more people represented in it and and I think that you know I would like really encourage people to like read what Ryan Coogler like said about refusing to be within the academy right this that they would rather that he would rather join a union I think that there's there's something really important in that refusal and I think that that's much more in, an important part of the Oscar so white story than celebrating a very important film like Moonlight winning right mm -hmm. like or getting getting caught up in this conversation about how Moonlight's moment was ruined all of those kinds of conversations they start in this place that you think oh it's going to be a really important conversation and they they just flatten everything and it leads leaves the structure unexamined and it means that everything just, everything just stays the same and a few more people benefit from like that conversation but essentially the conditions are left all, all it does is create a certain different kind of people in power, I would say. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, that's a, a good and right time to discuss this work isn't for us, which I mean, you've, you've called it a research paper, but it feels to me like a much more kind of complex poetic thing than perhaps what research paper conjures up. So I'm wondering how you define that piece of work and, you know, what, what compelled you to write it? You know, is, is there a moment in time where and what were you feeling at that moment in time that that pulled you towards making this piece of work? 
because I've just started my PhD, I'm really like reflecting on this work at first and I'm trying to think about what it was because, I mean, it's so many different things. It's, it, I mean, sort of factually, it's a Google Doc that lives on the internet and it contains a series of testimonies from people that I was like talking to about their experiences in the film industry. But actually it, across the arts, not just the film industry, but largely in the film industry, it reflects on my own experiences of the film industry and it's kind of trying to make sense of them. And then it also does like a deep dive into the history of diversity policy, professional development, public programming, like from a diversity lens, and also this idea of complaint and speaking out. And I think now that I have like a more academic like vocabulary and more like of an understanding of what it might be, it's like a it's a practice-based piece of research. And what I mean by that is that I did I I did things in order to understand what the insights of it was, right? So there were things like, I made a film, I I did a performance, but I also, I tried to resolve the issues that I was trying to draw attention to, right? And as in, I was talking to people in positions of power about these issues. And as I was talking to them, you know, like I have like a document of like 100 pages of emails to various people. And as I was exchanging these emails, I was understanding that this stuff is intrenchable or, you know, and and not that isn't to be cynical or to be defeatist. It's just a case of this isn't an issue of just people not knowing. Because at the beginning of that research, I was just like, oh, if people just knew, people read this document and everything will change. Then in the practice element of it, when you're starting to write emails and you're having, you're actually having conversations with people and you realise, oh, wow, it's not about knowing at all. Then is it about caring? And then you, then you think, oh, God, everyone needs to do anti-racist training or something. And then you're like, no, it's because nobody is free to do things differently. So then it becomes about changing something much bigger, right? So I guess that research paper is a google doc and it's all the things that i've just described but for me it's like this living breathing thing which is teaching me new things all the time and at the moment it's just like making as i said before like it's to me it's an abolitionist text in the sense of and it isn't i think that it's, it's difficult isn't it because i think people have these like loaded understandings of what abolition is and i think it will just turn people off for me to say that some people who work in the film industry but what i mean is is that I'm trying to think of another way to do stuff because the way that we are doing stuff isn't going to save us or is not going to create conditions for like liberated art or liberated ways of working. Because I, I think I began very, you know, when it first was finished, I was like very upset and angry, you know, like, because I was like trying to give people this information that people say they want, right? They're always commissioning research, aren't they? They're always collecting the stories of people that work in the in the film industry. And so you do that and then you realise that like nothing really changes. And then, but now I sort of think, oh, it's because no one is empowered to make that change because that change doesn't exist in one organisation or it doesn't exist interpersonally. Of course, we, we all have our part to play in it, but it is deeply structural and the film industry just replicates all the things that are wrong in like society and in the world and you know that's why like in the paper I'm trying to make 
you know, I'm kind of trying to make links between like universal credit and diversity policy, you know, like thinking about how like universal credit is like the, the which most like left-leaning people in the arts would say is like a terrible policy that has created so much harm. But the way that that is reported on and the ways that it is shown to be like an effective policy are the same ways that diversity policy is has been reported on and is shown to be an effective thing to do, right? And one of the things that, you know, I, I found really interesting about making that connection was a lot of the things that about things like universal credit is that they only measure the things that they want to see. And that is what the, you know, the film industry does all the time. All of these industries do, because essentially if they talked about what a failure, like all of these things are, then they would have to talk about why they're a failure. And then they would have to use really big words that people don't want to. And then they would have to think about how, that was enabled by the bigger funds of money, like the DCMS or the government and, you know, like function. So this is all, I don't know, I think that 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 document allows me to think bigger and bigger about what it's about because it's so expansive in in the story it tells. But it's like this constantly moving thing that's like traveling to other people that's helping me to then understand like other ways of doing things. And something you speak about in the text is how you're centering your own kind of personal experience. And without dwelling too much on the trauma, I'm just wondering, you know, what that experience was like of kind of grappling with your own experiences in the film and creative industries. You know, was that was that painful? Was that cathartic? How did you find that process? I think, you know, like at times it was really painful. For sure, it's like been very, uh, like hugely challenging and confronting because the research paper is about so many things. It's not just about experiencing racism. It's also about internalising racism. And it's also about, you know, there's this quote in it from Stuart Hall, which is where he talks about experiencing the end point of colonialism in his own family. And, you know, like the research also talks about that, you know, it goes right back to my dad, my my grandfather's choice to have his son be born as a British subject, even though he lived in a supposedly liberated India. You know, he made this choice so that my dad would have a British passport. So I'm here because in a way, my family didn't want to be free. And so, they, you know, they, they, I don't know, I think there's just like really interesting things that I started to connect, which are also deeply painful and make me think about why I made the decisions that I made. And, you know, why did I stay in an industry that was just so deeply apolitical and couldn't hear these things, right? And, and that's something that I really had to grapple with. And part of that was because I bought all of it. I bought this narrative of progress and success and still grapple with that, right? Like I still sometimes want validation from people and that all never give it to me. And but sort of sitting with that is painful. And and I hope that it isn't this portrayal of trauma. You know, one of the really interesting things like when but it definitely collided with experiences of trauma. And there are definitely moments where I really tip into this thing of anger as well right like so I would say righteous anger but it it was actually really rooted in deep pain and I think 
this moment where I like resigned from both the BFI and the British Council, like about a week after George Floyd's murder, I, you know, shared that online and I heard from someone that someone that I'd worked with was like kind of talking about how I was like self-destructing in public. I think that's like really fascinating to me. And obviously like it hit me really hard mm. to hear that. But at the same time, I think, God, yeah, like why is that seen as self? Like why is telling the truth about what you experience self-destructing in public? And also what are the the things that we can do for each other that are like, instead of being like, oh my God, like what is she doing? To being like, oh my God, what? has led to this happening so I guess I hope that I haven't in the paper done too much of a job of just like sharing my trauma but also say that I wish that the film industry I wish specifically the film industry actually because I think that there is a more developed understanding in other forms of art although you know no one is exempt from this but I wish there was just like more space for people to be able to go through that stage of having to share how painful this is. And then that there'd be a space for people to be able to talk about the deeper issues that aren't interpersonal, that are structural. But actually people just start stop talking to you because they're just like, oh God, you're not part of this anymore. And actually that's connected with failure. So this thing is like, it all becomes rooted in that person's like personal failure. And I think that's something that I grapple with all the time is like, how much is it visible that this is a choice to not participate? And how much is it just that, oh God, you know, Gemma just didn't succeed and I think those narratives like sit side by sides and that's why you know like my PhD is really looking at practices of freedom because it's like I feel much freer now but I have less things I gave up real things Mm -hmm. I really did give up real things but yeah what is liberation what is freedom and how are we all part of making freedom so conditional to people actually you know like and making belonging so conditional to people In light of that perceived personal failure and the fact that you intended for this paper to create change, which in some ways I think it did, but perhaps not in the tangible way of, you know, just the the people, you know, at the top of the industry sort of looking at it and going, God, we've been wrong for all this time. We need to really do something about this. I'm wondering how you then stepped away from it and kind of recharged, refueled, kind of retooled yourself to continue your abolitionist thinking in light of something that perhaps could have been quite debilitating you know having created something that then maybe didn't do what it set out to do does that make sense yeah I think like you know what like the bit of disappointment that you know I couldn't convince anyone to read it that I thought should read it or even maybe like recognition from other researchers who are doing similar research because it's not like got you know because it's a google doc that is still something that I think about but I don't, I don't know, like it gathered its own momentum and part of it was just because I let it go. Like I didn't, because for ages I didn't let it go. And then I was like in conversation with like Zarina Mohammed at the White Pube. And, you know, like for anyone that doesn't know the White Pube, they exist because they believe in like critique and they don't believe in rules about critique and they don't believe in rules about form something like that doesn't really exist in the film industry but in the art world I guess that's like something that has been embraced to a certain extent right and Zarina 
talks about them as like the cowboys of the art world or whatever and I didn't think that like this work isn't for us was like finished I didn't think that it was like polished enough but I also didn't have the energy to finish it I was just like this is what it is I can't I can't keep looking at this thing and Zarina just said yeah it is finished and just send it out so I just sent it out and I had done a similar thing with another piece the arts are in the sunken place I had sort of shared it on Twitter and it was again it's like it was a freeing thing it was like okay now it's like going to exist and then it found other people and this isn't like I'm not saying this is like a measure of like success or whatever but it has its own value which isn't the value that I imagined it would have and that I'm still trying to let go of but it does have its own value like last week I was like presenting the work at this um, symposium and people came up to me and like cried and said like thank you for drawing attention to something that and this wasn't someone in the film industry this was like in the visual arts and I think there's something to be said about how like little care there has been from people in the film industry saving real pockets of people and also in the US but in the UK film industry very little but yeah it, it found its own value and I created like going back to your question about community like I created a space where I could talk about the work with people that wanted to hear about it and they weren't necessarily people that could change it from the top but it became a more you know in the research I talk about like it being this bottom-up like piece of research and that most diversity policy and diversity research is from the top and for the top and actually you know what like what has happened with it is totally in line with the values of the piece so my desire for it to impact the top was actually this misunderstanding of my own work and again it's like this shedding of wanting things to change from the top because actually that isn't how things change right and what I think is relevant to people that anyone that's listening that thinks that change is still made from the top and maybe has like a senior position in the film industry you know what I would say is that loads of people in film made Black Lives Matter statements and Black Lives Matter is absolutely not about reform from the top is a grassroots movement from below and that people that have stood in alliance with that need to understand that and need to start thinking about how they are making change and who they are including in making that change so it's like I guess in a way like sadly the world echoed what I was saying at the time that the research circulated and it makes me think about all the times that other people have said that but they haven't had the world like echo them and how many other pieces of work might have been made or written or that just I don't know that are sitting in someone's drawer how many other letters of resignation that couldn't circulate online or that nobody cared about that again are just sitting in people's drawers it, it, it is again like in a way the way that it circulates constantly teaches me about what it's about and how to practice the thing that I've written I mean part of the question was about how you've continued your thinking or how you've recharged and so I'm wondering if it's the unfinished nature of the text like the ongoingness of the learning process and and partly the research that you're now doing at the PhD that kind of motivates you to keep thinking about this stuff it's also because there's something that happened like during that, which is I understood how things work, understand how structures work really well. And you collide with structures all the time, right? And the emails that I wrote that led me to the insights of this. So these emails that I was writing to like my boss 
both of my bosses. I've written those emails in, not just in the context of work. I've now, I've now written emails to a therapy provider. I've written emails to my daughter's nursery. Like you realize that the thing that you're thinking about isn't just a part of this job that you have. So it isn't as simple as like leaving your job. This is literally about how everything works, right? And and the more that you, and again, this is due to this collision with this huge movement that happened and all this work that's been going on. And I guess it's about understanding that my belonging doesn't exist in this industry that doesn't want to hear it, that my belonging is actually one of learning from people that have been saying the same thing that I have said in this paper, like more expansively about the world for for years, right? So it's about learning about that. And then it's about finding ways. So this word, which I discovered for the first time when there was the first experimental cinema at London Film Festival, when I'd just come back from maternity leave praxis right this is like not just thinking but also doing and practicing doing and applying right Mm. that is a word that I wish more people like thought about and it's kind of given me this yeah I guess it's it's made it's raised the bar uh, of how I want to proceed in the world the kind of work that I want to do and understanding that don't know everything and understanding that there's this constant like thing of learning and recreating and that there's endless possibility and actually that this work is really joyful and it isn't full of loads of people who like have been left out of something or are trying to be included in something that doesn't want them actually it's like this part of this really expansive like transformative way of thinking like liberated way of thinking is what keeps me going because I'm now around a lot of people and I'm inspired by a lot of people that aren't they're not just they're not trying to fix like things that can't be fixed it's like this really creative transformative world full of people with huge imagination huge talent and sometimes it's hard right because you then go back to like you know you get really excited and then this experience like the one at Berwick where you know you you sort of go you do it again you know you're like oh my god I'm gonna share this document and then everyone's gonna change how they program and then you're like oh no no no, that's not how this works but so, so this constant like iterative thing and but I think a lot of it's to do with being around the right people and finding space for like real joy and real creativity and I'm very 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 lucky that I got funding for this PhD because I had a little taste of working with Berwick and realized that the expansiveness of how I'd been thinking and it's very hard to just apply and keep going like Mm. it's it's really 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 hard and especially if you aren't supported with other people and that it takes a lot so I feel really grateful that I get to come back into this space of thinking more expansively and still being practical in the sense of like I hope creating something that will be useful to people but for me it's definitely being around people who think that everything is possible and not around people who are so ground down with how impossible everything is you might have just answered this next question in terms of yeah finding the right people and, and creating space for joy but I'm going to ask it anyway in case it brings up anything new and that's that a guiding kind of principle and theme in your work is this idea of care and how that often shapes against productivity and so I'm wondering how how you manifest that in your work at the moment you know how do you seek to take care of yourself first and foremost but also others in a professional or personal context 
so because I do some work in like visual arts now like or it you know that this work isn't for us has been interestingly quite embraced by people in visual arts I think there are lots of reasons for that there's a more developed kind of idea about institutional critique in the visual arts there's also this more developed conceptualized idea of care in the visual arts which I think is about 10 years ahead of the film industry but at the same time visual arts is really good at extracting things for content but not enabling things structurally which is exactly what the film industry does right so I've been thinking about that about like how do you structurally enable care so not just say that you care about care or that you are going to program loads of films about care or that you're going to care for artists because actually there's a lot of stuff around caring for filmmakers caring for artists at the moment and the people that are doing that work so the programmers the managers the curators they do care but honestly they will burn out if it's not structurally enabled if it's just like this one person's job or like this one director's job because there are some really great like directors there's been some great hires but I see a lot of burnout and so I'm really interested I went on this retreat that was led by Fazana Khan of Healing Justice London and also Camille Barton who is this like absolutely brilliant practitioner who does many different things but is running an MA program I think in Amsterdam called Ecologies of Transformation around arts practices and how could they could be more transformative and they ran this retreat in June which was a grief retreat so it was thinking about how to take care of your grief how to practice rituals to to heal yourself from grief and I I kind of I went there with the grief of this project actually not just this but also like other things but this was a big part of it like what I saw to be like the the ways that I hadn't been heard and the ways that it was impossible to be heard their their whole retreat was very much about practices in the body like self-regulation and you know when you regulate your body lots of things happen and lots of things are possible but what really for me happened is that I understood that there are boundaries to the work that you can do but that by creating the boundaries the potential for that work becomes limitless So I think that what the film industry, other industries do is that they say that you can, they just add more and more, right? It's like this colonial mentality of like, we'll just have more, 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 more films, more films in the festival, more screenings, more guests, more everything. And what that ends up doing is like complete burnout for staff, like terrible working conditions. And that cycle just replicates like every year because you have to get bigger and better and, you know, you know, whatever, have more famous people. And actually, like, just connecting with my body and being like, this is my capacity. And actually, you know, my work isn't just about the work that I get paid for. My work is also, I need to conserve energy for my daughter and to have these really terrible conversations with her nursery or like, you know, that that is also part of the work. So what does that mean? But as a result of that, as a result of kind of maybe doing less or being more selective about the people that I'm around and the things that I say and the things that I talk about, the transformative potential of those things is much bigger. And I think maybe this conversation is a good example of this, right? So the first time you had the conversation, I kind of just had this conversation, even though I wasn't like super like feeling very well. And, and actually just knowing that actually I wasn't feeling quite right in my body, like led me to say to you, do you know what? I don't think that was a conversation that I wanted to have. And can we please have it again? And, and actually, I think, I hope this second conversation has opened out much more possibilities than the first conversation did. I think that's like a really good example. And, you know, 
obviously you were like really open to doing that so but a lot of the time we don't speak up about things that are wrong because we don't even we can't even work out what is wrong because we're not connected with what feels wrong because we're, we're just so just getting on with it and I think that was also like the root of this work isn't for us is that for years and years and years I had this feeling like in my body something is up something is wrong this isn't right but there was just no way to stop and say that and and so the thing that I had to strip out that claw allowed me to do was like just stop working and when I stopped working and had this like freedom to think this whole articulation of what was wrong came out and that was really freeing and this kind of connects with your out of office email which I just want to bring up um briefly because you know it's 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 amazing I was just quite struck by it I don't I don't think I've seen something like it before and it's it's almost like asking for pause asking for asking for care you know you just you just kind of lay out the fact that you might not get back this email within the expected time but you know what is the expected time that's arbitrary um and then you you know you've got links to your work and um other such other such things and I'm wondering if there's anything else tangible like that that you've you've put in place you know boundaries that you've put in place to enable yourself to work in a healthier way yeah I think like um boundaries is really interesting thing because so like the history of that out of office is that like when when I had the claw like money I was like really like oh god I'm spending so much time on admin and you know I need to do some deep thinking and I can't possibly do all this admin so maybe I should get like an assistant right so I was like maybe I should get someone to do my admin and then I like was like oh maybe I should have office hours right so I saw that some people had office hours so saying so very much being boundary doing these are the times when I write emails and then I received this email from my friend Toby Cheramatang who's like this filmmaker like produced theatre producer like incredible person and we were like part of this class together and I had just written to Toby to like say how much like it'd been nice to hear her in class and like did she want to hang out and I got this like really nice email back which was saying basically I'm kind of busy at the moment and I might not get back to you straight away, but here are some really nice things that you could look at. And I just really loved it because it wasn't like, I'm so important. I might not get back to you. It was more like there are just some stuff that might mean that it is kind of saying the same thing, but it's not, it's, it's not saying that like your communication isn't important to me or that it's work that someone else should be doing and that my work is more important. You know, like it wasn't creating this hierarchy of anything. It was just, this is just life. And this is one part of my life. Like I'm not here all the time, right? And and I thought it was really beautiful. And then Toby said, Oh, please use it. And so I did and I made it mine. But I guess the question made me think about like the history of it because I think it's also about not denigrating the labor, right? Of of admin, because someone is emailing you because they have do and they've been asked to or they want to do work and so it's not I'm not trying to say like my time is more precious than yours or anything like that but I guess it's more of a question like do we want to spend our time like writing these emails and and it changed how people were with me I thought that was really interesting that there was this I think what you just described is really nice you know like this call for pause and it wasn't that wasn't something that I knew you know again it was like one of those things where like I recognized how Toby's email made me feel as opposed to you know sometimes office hours email 
emails make you just feel like very like told off. And as someone who has been like, you know, had jobs where my job is to write emails constantly to people, like and sometimes very annoying long emails, the generosity of that email was something that I think is really nice I think it did yeah it did allow for pause it allowed for rest and people chase me in a different way and I think I have a different relationship to my Mm. inbox now just generally even when I did this Beric job I just have it's trained me to be different about my inbox that doesn't mean I don't reply it's just I don't feel rushed by my inbox anymore Mm. Yeah. And, and often then you'll, you'll come to people when you're ready or when you have what you need to give, as opposed to, as you say, rushing it because you feel like there's an expectation to have replied by a certain amount of time. I think it's to the benefit of everybody, probably. Usually around this time, I kind of ask what's been like the biggest learning curve, but being conscious of this idea of trajectory and thinking of this as like the peak upon which you look back at the view, I, I'd like to reframe it differently and see if that provides a different answer. And, and so I'm wondering just how you feel about your career at this stage in it, you know, like are your feelings towards it positive? Are you proud? Just how do you how do you configure it? So I've been in conversation with Lola Olufemi like recently because we're both doing PhDs and she's just like this incredible thinker who's part of this collective called Bare Minimum and you know you should put it in the show notes there's this in their statement they just talk about all the things that they're trying to resist and they're, they're you know one of those things is work it's like they don't want to work like that's the whole point of like bare minimum collective is like we want to do the bare minimum and we want to think and we want to transform the world and that has got nothing to do with like capitalist production and yeah and I think that they articulate it really well in this this statement which is like you know it's about I don't know if anything I have done is like you know worthwhile and like I don't know I, I can't I can't be the judge of that but what I do know is that I feel freer and less just less unhappy actually and and I feel like good I some I sometimes can look at my work and feel proud of it and that that is like a a beautiful thing and I'm around people whose work I like I don't want to criticize but rather I am like deeply inspired by and that was absolutely not the case before that I would often be in situations where I'd be like I can't believe that this is the work that I'm around like why you know what does it mean that the stuff that people are saying is good is like this and it was it would really eat me up and I think now it's just so beautiful to yeah be around work like Lola's work um many other people um not just Lola but be around work where I'm just like oh god this isn't not even like this is something to reach towards but it's like oh my god this is happening like this is incredible that this is happening that's so exciting that this is happening I think that that is like a measure of my success and I guess I'm trying to think about, I'm trying to measure it in terms of, yeah, liberation and freedom and how I feel in my body and, and and also gratitude, right? I feel grateful, but not in the ways that I felt before, which was really about a lack in me, you know, oh, I'm so grateful that, you know, this person gave me a chance or something, or that's not how I feel now, but I feel full of gratitude that I have space and time and that I have time to think through the the things that will mean that my daughter Lena won't experience the same collisions with these structures that I did that I can create something that 
is potentially a roadmap for her I think that's kind of how I could answer that question no I think that is a beautiful answer it kind of chimes I don't know if you watch Insecure but there's a new season and um in the in the latest the first episode of the new season the main character she's on a panel and about her her business and they, they all have to answer the question um this is such a tangent but it just really struck in my mind but they all have to answer a question about when they knew that they'd made it or when they first felt success and Issa the main character is just like I don't know I don't know that I've made it. I don't know that I've made the right choice like how do you how do you ever know like I'm just on this journey and I don't know I just I find that there's there's something quite empowering about sometimes admitting that like you don't know or just yeah, that you're doing it anyway. And then finally, I would love to know if there's a film from a woman director, um, old or new, short or feature length, narrative or nonfiction that you'd like to recommend today. Um, when we talked before, we also talked about books. So I'm just going to give like a few recommendations. A film that I've been thinking a lot about, which is it's about a woman filmmaker, um, Murata Mita when mum decolonizes the screen which is actually made by her son and it's on Netflix and it's really wonderful and I think it's I've been coming back to this film because she says so many incredible things in it and she really it's really interesting because it's like about the difficulties of working politically and the ways that people react to you and also how your children react to you, right? When you're really, really engaging with structures and trying to change them, like how it impacts your entire life. And I've written about it before. Like I wrote this letter to my daughter and I wrote about that film. And so I've been thinking a bit about that. And then I wanted to talk about Lola's work. I think Lola's book, Feminism Interrupted, is like really important. And I think some of the stuff that we talked about like earlier in the conversation, if that's like something that makes sense to you, then Lola's a really good place to go. Like if you're wanting to understand it from like a specifically like Black British lens. And yeah, definitely to check out the bare minimum like statement. But if it kind of didn't make sense to you and you're wondering what it's all about is like this book by Alison Phipps called uh, Me Not You, The Trouble with Mainstream Feminism. I think she builds on work that was done by this um, academic called Ron Ware, which was I think it's called Beyond the Pale. It's really talking about the kind of relationships between carcerality, the far right and white women's liberation movements, actually. And it's really, again, this isn't to criticise white women feminists. It's more just to think like historically, what have these movements done and what have they left out and who have they allowed to speak and who have they listened to and who have they not? And the thing that I guess is like feeding me and transforming me the most, apart from Lola's work, which is definitely doing that, is also like reading with my daughter. And I've been reading these books that Toni Morrison wrote with her son. And I think there's about eight of them. And they're recommended to me actually by um, Claudia Youssef, who like works for BBC Films, who's got a son like the same age. And they're really about, they're about freedom, but they're, well, they're about like lots of different things one is about like what it means to be an artist one is about just hanging out with grandma one is about like yeah basically about the criminal justice system and how children are never listened to and they're so interesting because in this time when everyone's like reading anti-racist books and is like so desperate like for their children not to be racist or not to be seen as racist or whatever these books are like not didactic at all they aren't about like slavery but what they do is help you to have conversations with your children like critical reflection conversations 
And honestly, after having done anti-racist education with adults and having had a lot of conversations with people in positions of power, if we could, and, and then have, you know, conversations with my daughter who is like four and a half I would say that we need to stop trying to change like this generation that's already got these entrenched views I think we need to start taking seriously how we build in these ideas of critical reflection these ideas of questioning structures these ideas of like questioning the nuclear family questioning prisons questioning the police and their powers, questioning this division between like art and work. And we need to do that with our children. And and we need to learn from the ways that they have this capacity to like accept that. And the conversations I have with Lena through reading these books is just like, oh, wow, this is so obvious. But I have all this stuff to unlearn, but she doesn't. And it's such a privilege to read these books with her. So I actually think that I've been surprised in all these lists that came out in the last couple of years that Toni Morrison's books aren't, um, like these children's books in particular, aren't talked about more. Um, And I really recommend that people check them out. Thank you for sharing that recommendation with me. And and thank you so much just for, for showing up again, for, for being so willing to have this conversation um, twice. And, and both of them uh, have been incredibly enriching and enjoyable. So yeah, I really appreciate your time, Gemma. Oh, thank you. No, it was really, really nice to talk to you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review, subscribe and spread the word. This is an entirely independent, self-funded, self-promoted podcast. So anything you can do to tell your friends about it is hugely appreciated and genuinely means a lot. If you want to dig into the archive, well, you're in luck. There are 90 plus more episodes for you to discover on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. I've been Nicole Davis and I'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, have a restful week. Take care of yourselves, be gentle with others and read as much as you can. Thank you.